message about how I first came to know this church. You were without a pastor. It was stressful. And the Presbytery immediately jumped in and started sending men to help you and to preach and to minister with you because of their great love and great concern for the church and for the people. This text um, speaks to Paul's concern for the Thessalonian church when he could not be there, as he had to be separated from them for a time, and they had no minister. So let us read the text, starting at chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll follow down. We'll read the whole of chapter 13, although we won't finish, or chapter 3, although we won't finish it today. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And when we were with you, we kept on telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has now come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come, from, uh, come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you are always remembering us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, direct your way. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. We find first Paul's distress at having to be separated and his concern for them, and then the good report. And pray as we look at his distress today that we would think about the importance of the church, the importance of the faithfulness of it, 
the importance of the ministry in it, both the ministry of the pastor and the ministry to one another, and ask, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to remind us of the historical context, Paul had come to Macedonia after receiving a vision. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he came, he evangelized, he preached the gospel, he established churches, and he ministered to them. And the churches here were a mixed group of believing Jews and generally newly converted Gentiles. There were some Jewish proselytes amongst the Gentiles, people who had converted to Judaism before learning of Christ, who embraced Christ also. But a lot of newly converted Gentiles. In every city Paul went to, there was persecution, and he was forced to leave. He started in Philippi and was driven out. Thessalonica, he had to flee. Berea, they followed him there, and he had to flee. And he went to Athens. And he's in Athens when he writes these two letters to the Thessalonians. Because he wasn't able to continue his ministry in person, he, he wrote to them to encourage them and exhort them in the grace of the Lord. And so that's where we are in today's passage. In each place, the persecution came because of the name of Christ, and Paul just moved on to another place. Uh, it was sometimes necessary for him not to be there because they were focusing their hatred to the church on Paul. And when he left, they had a little more peace and could operate their church and do the work of the Lord. But in, but apparently Silas and Timothy came probably from Berea to join Paul in Athens, and Paul sent Timothy back to strengthen the church in Thessalonica, and apparently Silas went somewhere else in Macedonia, leaving Paul's team without the two supporting ministers that were working with him. So he's there with his team alone without any other ministers. And they were going to re- they will rejoin him when he gets to Corinth. And Paul had left Athens and went to Corinth, and Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia uh, after he had been there a while in Athens. He was, Paul was always occupied with the word and the testimony, even in Athens while he was waiting for them. So as we look at our text today, starting at verse 17, we'll go down through chapter 3, verse 5. (coughs) We see that Paul's absence from this young church weighed heavily on his mind because it was suffering persecution. Paul was really tormented that he couldn't be there in person to help them out. And so he offers them some encouragements in his letter, some reminders. He was torn away from them, he says, in body only. His heart was still very much with them. Uh, The situation kind of summarized in many places, so I won't do it in my own words. Uh, Dr. Battle's seminary notes have a pretty good summary. Paul had been there in Thessalonica probably at least three weeks. He said he reasoned with them three Sabbath days in the synagogue, the Jews. And that was really his evangelism style. He would go into the synagogues. He would prove to them that Jesus was the Christ. Some Jews would believe. 
and also some God-worshipping Greeks, and in this case, many prominent women also are mentioned. And Paul's success, particularly success amongst the Gentiles, because the unbelieving Jewish leaders, to become very envious of them, they'd stir up the rabble of the city. I love the King James here. Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> they have a way of putting it that is interesting. But they stirred them up to attack. You know, the Jews and the Gentiles didn't talk to each other. But now you have the Jewish leaders going to the riffraff of the city, trying to get them to fight against the Christians. Uh, really shows their hypocrisy and that they and the unbeliever, the riffraff of the city were really well well connected as far as morals go and religion goes. So there was an uproar in the city. The city officials take money from the new Christians to guarantee their good behavior. The account of all of this is in Acts chapter 17. When they passed through Amephilus and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaimed to you is the Christ. And when some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many, great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, out the, bring him out to the crowd, bring the apostles Paul out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they snuck them out. When they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So we see the, the beginnings of the persecutions that would face the people of Thessalonica both at the hands of the Jews, who were hindering the gospel, and at the hands of their own countrymen. And it really vividly was shown in last week's passage, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 in particular, the, the attitude Paul has towards them of heaping up their sins and their efforts to stop the gospel and close heaven to the people. The Christians in Thessalonica sent... Paul and Silas, and possibly Timothy, we don't know who exactly was with him at the time, sent them secretly off to Berea. It was a city a little off the main road. It was to the southwest of Thessalonica. Uh, Paul was probably forced to leave behind that infant church, still suffering persecution and still in need of teaching. And the two Thessalonian epistles were written later from the city of Corinth, 
not too long after he left Thessalonica. And in them, they describes his ministry to them and his desire to be with them and his concern for their faithfulness in his absence. That's what we're seeing in the passage this week. While he was apart from them, Paul's heart was really burdened for them. Their suffering, but more importantly, their incomplete knowledge and their fledgling faith. The word he used in Greek here is a word for being bereaved of your parents. And the idea being that he is, you know, he was gentle like a nursing mother and he admonished and uh, encouraged them, exhorted them like a father with his children. Well, now the church, the people there are bereaved of essentially their parent, the minister, the shepherd of God's sheep. They're his spiritual children in the sense that he brought the gospel to them and was ministering to them as their shepherd. And now they're bereaved of him and he of them. And what follow in this passage are a number of evidences that he's giving to reassure them of his love for them and of how important they are to him and of his faithfulness to them. It's an encouragement to them, but it's also instructive to us see both the danger to a church left without a shepherd. Uh, we certainly saw that in the golden calf incident. Moses goes up the mountain and they pretty much renounce God and go back to what they were doing as pagans, the Jewish people, make a golden calf. Uh, they were very, Paul was very concerned for their, for their souls and for their faith that somebody might some deceiver might come in and start teaching heresy or try to twist them and turn them away from God to their idols or turn them to salvation by the Jewish ceremonial law. And so they were a church left without a shepherd. And Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, shared that kind of a burden. When he went through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, it says he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. (coughs) He's talking about the Jewish people being harassed and helpless before their own authorities and leaders who were so unbelieving and hostile to God. Uh, Continuing on, They said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. That was Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus had a real burden for the people who weren't being shepherded. You know, we are all a kingdom of priests, yes, but God has appointed some to be shepherds and teachers, and they're there to guide and to help and to strengthen and encourage the sheep. Paul also longed for more laborers to minister in every one of his churches. When he was in prison in Rome, or just after he was released from Rome, his first imprisonment, he was in Ephesus and he wrote Timoth- he wrote to Titus saying, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He then lists the requirements for the elder or the pastor. 
so that they would have a qualified person in every town able to take care of them. It was so important to him. And there was a heavy burden on his heart to make sure that every church, every town had a shepherd for the flock. At this point, for Thessalonica, he was the shepherd. He had gone there, he had shared the gospel, he had converted them, he had organized them, and he had been driven out and had to leave, as much for their sake as for his. He was the lightning rod. (laughs) So when he left, things would calm down and they could continue on a little bit better. Paul was very much unwilling to be torn away from them. He wanted to be there. He wanted to finish the work. He wanted to minister to them. Of course, him being driven from town to town increased the spread of the gospel because he was the great apostle to the Gentiles and his evangelism and his ministry work in church planning was very effective. And so God was allowing him to be driven from place to place so that he would plant the churches. But he very much longed to see them again. We see the end of verse 17 and verse 18. It said, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He knows firsthand the persecutions they face and how those can wilt a tender believer. You remember the parable of the four soils. The sand that fell on the rocky ground, Jesus said, that did not have much soil, it immediately sprang up. And since there's no depth of soil, but when the sun arose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. This explanation of that, as Matthew 13, 5 and 6, down in verse 20, he explains the rock, or the seed sown on rocky ground is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But because he has no root in himself, he endures a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. I think Jesus is talking about those who give up the faith and leave it. But Paul's concern for them is, of course, the persecution will weigh heavily on them. They may stumble. They may fall into sin. They may give up for a time being a Christian. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be with them so that he can help them endure and teach them to endure and encourage them and admonish them to continue on in the faith. But notice he says Satan hindered them from coming. Now, Paul isn't being flippant here. And he isn't, as some false prophets today, talking about Satan coming and how he's going, I'll bind you. There's none of that nonsense here. Paul is simply stating the work of the apostate Jews that we were looking at last week and the pagan Gentiles who were persecuting Paul and persecuting the church and opposing the gospel They are doing the work of Satan. Jesus said to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. So violence and deception, false teachings, These are the work of Satan. And as Jesus accused the Jewish leaders, so Paul here is saying those who are opposing the gospel, those who are persecuting you, are servants of Satan. 
And Satan is hindering us through his children's work, hindering us from ministering to you and to be, from being there. We're not told the exact details of how, but we know of the persecutions. They were very much struggling, and Paul's desire was very strong to be with them. Paul wrote the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. He's identifying the enemies of the church as not acting on their own but acting under the power and authority of Satan and of the evil of this world, the corruption of this world. And because of the persecution and the needs of the ministry and the opposition of Satan, Paul really was unable to come to them at the present time, no matter how much he personally desired to be there. And his desire for them is very strong and he wants them to understand that. And so he says the reason for his desire, in part at least, is because they are his hope, his joy, his crown at Jesus' coming. In Philippians, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I will choose, I cannot tell. Paul was living for Christ, living, he was suffering, and he was persecuted. And it was nece- and if necessary, he would die for the service of Christ. And that was dying in hope because of when Jesus would come again. And part of his hope, his confidence in dying, was the ministry God had given to him. He had been doing it. And it had been successful. It was not in vain. It had been producing fruit, and it produced fruit in Thessalonica. And he's holding them up and saying, look at what has happened with you. God's word has transformed your lives, and now you're facing persecution. That is proof and evidence, and that gives me joy, not that you are persecuted, but that your persecution is because of your faith, and that your faith is real. The faithful churches that he planted brought him all that joy, seeing all these brothers brought to the Lord. Uh, His work among them were truly his hope and his joy and his crown. And the persecutions are nothing compared to that. His hope was in eternity, not today. Remember he said to the Corinthians, if in Christ only we have hope, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people to be most pitiful, most pitied. (coughs) His hope was in eternity. And if your hope is in eternity, then you can have joy even in your suffering. He said, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look 
not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. So the things that we see right here and now, temporary, you know, moth and rust destroy, thieves steal. The things that are eternal, the things that are heavenly, the things we can't see that we live for in hope, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the eternity with God, those things are real and permanent, even though we don't see him. So Paul's fruitful work amongst them is something he expects a reward for, and he wants to see and strengthen them, lest they stumble. And so he's really deeply troubled by being forced to be separated from them at this time. When they're so new in the faith, so young, so weak, they're like a nursing child. They need their parents. And chapter 3, verse 1, he could bear it no longer. He could keep silent no longer. He was so agitated by what was going on. He was even willing to go so far as to be left alone for their sake. His comfort and health was less important than theirs. So he was willing to give up all the people who were ministering with him and, and be alone so that somebody could be there with them. He, he couldn't go himself because Satan was hindering him and Satan was persecuting them. And it was really unbearable for him. You remember in Second Corinthians 11, he gives the long list of all the things he has suffered for God. But I want to point to the end of it. After he mentions all the physical suffering, he says in verse 28, apart from the other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? The Thessalonians were brand new believers, Gentiles, unfamiliar with the scriptures, babes in Christ. And like newborn infants, they needed that pure spiritual milk that they could grow up into salvation. Mentioned in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. And so he's very concerned for them, and he's willing, rather that he should be alone, that they would have the comfort of those who served with him. While he was in Athens, he really needed the help of Silas and Timothy. Now, being alone in that kind of a city was going to be rough work. It was surrounded by the elite of the elite of the pagan religion. And he was debating with them. Hard work and difficult work. But because his burden was so unbearable, he was willing to give up their help and send them off, Timothy, to Thessalonica and Silas. We don't know where he went, but he also was gone. These people, they needed Timothy more than Paul needed him. They needed a parent to nurse them and to exhort them. And Paul sent his helpers, his brothers, away that that could happen. Now, if you think of Timothy, who he is, they met in Lystra. He was half Jewish through his mother, his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, remember the story. And he'd been trained in the scriptures from birth. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and 2 Timothy 3, 15. Timothy desired to accompany them, as John Mark had done earlier. 
And Timothy, because he was part Jewish, Paul had him circumcised. And that confuses people sometimes, but his circumcision was because as a Jew, he would be able to go into the Jewish synagogue, go into the Jewish home, and work with them. But if he wasn't circumcised, they would not allow that. And so as part of his ministry, he allowed Timothy to be circumcised so that he could accompany them. Now, Titus, on the other hand, who was also a pastor that Paul would work with later, he was a Gentile, and he did not get circumcised because there was no point in that. In Galatians chapter 2, we read, 14 years later, after Paul's conversion, he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ, Jesus, so they might bring us back into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's Galatians chapter 2, the first five verses. Uh, the point being, Paul has been teaching everywhere that circumcision is not required for salvation. The Judaizers are teaching you can't be saved without circumcision in obeying the law of Moses. Uh, Timothy, yes, was circumcised because he was a Jew and they wanted him to be able to go into the synagogue and into Jewish homes. But Titus, being a Gentile, was not circumcised. And Paul insisted on that because circumcision would be of no value. And circumcision being forced by the circumcision sect was a religious ordinance that wasn't appropriate for the believer, for the Christian. Timothy and Paul had a very long and fruitful association from there up until Paul's death. We know he had a godly Jewish mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures. We saw that already. His father was Greek, we read in Acts 16. Possibly converted by Paul in Lystra during his first missionary journey. Circumcised by Paul on the second missionary journey so he could become an assistant. Ordained by Paul. We see, we read about that in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Ordained to the ministry as a minister. Uh, with Paul during his second missionary journey is particularly the long time he was in Corinth after after he wrote these letters in Athens, he moves down to Corinth and spent quite a bit of time there. And Timothy was there ministering with him. Um, five years later, during the third missionary journey, we know he was with him in Ephesus, where he taught for an extended period of time. And he was sent to various places at that point. He was mature enough in his ministry and his teaching and his abilities as a minister that he was sent to Corinth and to Macedonia, and he was with Paul a lot too. And he was with Paul when he returned to Troas. And he was with Paul when Paul was in prison. Timothy wasn't arrested and a prisoner, so he was Paul's legs 
outside of the prison, or uh, outside of the house where he was imprisoned. And Paul sent Timothy to Philippi. And during his last days, he was ministering for Paul and wasn't with Paul, so Paul was very distressed about that. But he wrote him letters and encouraged him in the ministry. He wanted, he would love to have Timothy with him, but the needs of the ministry meant that Timothy had to be in other places, like here today, like what we're reading. He sent him on his mission to exhort them as a pastor would, as a father exhorts his children. So Timothy was to go and exhort the people in the church in Thessalonica. Right, we read that passage last week, you know, or two weeks ago, last week or two weeks. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul is now sending Timothy to exhort them. And the exhortation is, you know, walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk as a true Christian. Walk in obedience to God's revealed will. <coughs> this exhortation is the work, yes, of the pastor, but it's also the work of the people and the work of the church. Later in the letter, in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore encourage, the same word exhort, gets translated encourage, exhort, other words. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And he further, in verse 14, he calls on them, Urge your brothers to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so it was something he was calling on the people to do for one another, but he was sending Timothy as a minister to minister to them in that manner. Hebrews really makes this clear that it's a work of not just the pastor, but of the whole church. It says in uh, Hebrews 10, 23 and following, Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, same word here, exhorting, all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's about the day of Jesus, the coming of the Lord, the day when he will judge the living and the dead and we will receive our reward. And what are we to be doing? Encouraging one another and encouraging the church. And that's why it's important for people to be attending church. One of Satan's latest attacks is persuading people that you can be a church of one and worship at home. And certainly the pandemic panic has caused a lot of people to worship at home, but they're losing that mutual encouragement and exhortation. It's not enough just to hear a pastor preach. You need to be together, sharing your lives, helping each other, encouraging each other, walking the walk together. And so that is the point made in Hebrews, encouraging or exhorting one another. Uh, this is really the calling, especially of Timothy here as a pastor. And Timothy is told that. In 2 Timothy 4, the first five verses, he says, I, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, 
Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So his job is, as a minister, to continue the exhortation, but also the rebuking and the reproving as a minister. That's his job. But note, it's the word in season and out of season, whether it's convenient or not, whether people really want to hear it or not. And that's where he continues on in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so his ministry as a minister, and all ministers really ministry, includes reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with patience for everyone in the church. They were, especially in our context today, to be exhorted to endure their persecution. Now, it's a funny word here used for do not be moved, that they would not be moved. The word has to do with the wagging of the tail of a dog. Literally meaning, uh, literally means move the tail back and forth. Uh, metaphorically here it's used, and the word is also used metaphorically in, in normal Greek, for a moving of the mind, in our case, for the mind to be agitated or disturbed or troubled. Paul doesn't want them to be disheartened like the seed sown on stony ground, but he wants them to remain firm and to remain fruitful. Persecution has come, but it shouldn't be disturbing to them. And if you rub the head of a dog, the tail wags. If you persecute the Christian, the Christian should not give up. They should not be moved like that. It's an automatic reaction, but it's one we, we should suppress as believers. Satan wants the tail to wag the dog, but we need to be firm. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Psalm 112, verse 6 through 8. The righteous should never be moved. But we face persecutions, and they were facing persecution But note what he says in the second half of verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It is our destiny to be persecuted as Christians. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. Then all these things they would do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. John 15, 18 through 21. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, and they certainly did. Paul has already warned us, if we want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. 
All evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Let's be crystal clear here. Paul has told us and Jesus has told us, if we want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, if we want to be a follower of Jesus, then we will be persecuted. If we don't desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, how can we call ourselves a believer? How can we call ourselves a Christian? That is what he has called us to do. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Which is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let himself, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Forever is ashamed of me and my words. Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke 9, 23 through 26. We are to live for that day. Mentioned here repeatedly in First Thessalonians in the passages we've read, but mentioned by Jesus as well. We shouldn't be ashamed of his word. He tells us they will hate us on his name's For his name's sake, they will persecute us as they persecuted him. If we're ashamed of that word, he will be ashamed of us. Live for the day in which he returns. Live for the day in which he will judge the living and the dead. Live for the day in which he will reward us. Live for that day. We must be exhorted, though, to do that, to see sufferings rightly. We must be exhorted to be able to see suffering through God-colored glasses. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our heart from the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Don't we want hope? We want hope. Where does it come from? I'm twisting the scripture and making it say what we want it to say. No, this hope comes from suffering, from suffering our persecutions. And notice that he says here that as we have told you, we've told you beforehand, we've warned you, Jesus warned you, I warned you. you know, it's possible for a minister to go through his whole life preaching selected texts of the Bible and never, ever, ever once preach on persecution being necessary for the Christian. Remember Paul's charge to Timothy, though. Charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, 
endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry? Second Timothy 4, verse 5 verses. Paul did not pick and choose what messages people would like. He didn't pick and choose what they would accept. He didn't pick and choose what would make him popular. He didn't pick and choose what he knew he could preach and get away with without being harassed or abused or insulted or hated by his own church. He preached the whole counsel of God. And that was not only his claim, but his comfort. After all the prophecies warning him that he would be arrested in Jerusalem, that he might never come again to Ephesus, he was speaking to the Ephesian elders and he said, I testify to you this day I am innocent the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. What does he mean by that? Well, the minister's job is like the watchman on the wall. If he doesn't blow the trumpet and say, the enemy is coming, people will die. And the watchman, having not done his job, would be guilty of their blood. And he's saying it's the same for the minister. If you don't preach the whole counsel of God and they behave foolishly in sin because you didn't tell them, then their blood is on your hands and God will hold you accountable. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock of which the overseers made you overseers, and the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things from among your own selves in the church to draw away disciples after themselves. Acts 20, 26 through 30. What kind of twisted things do they teach? Well, today it's very popular to say God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you worship God and become a Christian, that's what will happen. And if you're suffering or you're persecuted, it's because you deserve it, you've done wrong to God opposite of what Paul says. Paul says here that he sent Timothy because he could bear no longer being apart from them. Not just to minister, but also to report back. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He wanted to know about their fruit. Were they resisting the temptations of Satan or not? Satan puts ambushes on every side and snares all around us. So we really need to be on our watch. Remember Peter's exhortation, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have endured for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Paul wanted to know whether the Satan had managed to turn them, deceive them, take them away from the faith. And he wanted Timothy to encourage them and admonish them to continue in the faith. And so 
That's why he has sent Timothy. And that's also why he has written this letter to encourage them to walk in a manner worthy of God. It's uh, something that the church does, that the minister does. And a person who has no church, a church who has no minister, they really have a hard time of it. And that's what burdened his heart so much and why it is so important to have faithful ministers in the church, faithful elders to oversee the church. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text that shows us Paul's great concern for the church, his desire to be there to minister to them, his sending someone else to minister in his place because he could not go. We understand the call that he has given them to live for that day, live for the coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be prepared for that, that we might be prepared to receive our reward, not to be worried about the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, things that will all fade and disappear, but to be concerned about your kingdom, and your approval. And pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts also, as Paul encouraged them, to live a life worthy of our calling, to live a life worthy of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.